For many planning their next holiday, the idea of swimming in crystal blue waters, baking in the sun on a small uninhabited island, sounds like a dream come true. I think it has become such a big industry because of the natural beauty of the country. Its weather is perfect, beautiful beaches, beautiful sea, and it has made it such an ideal tourist destination. And although this may be a reality for only a small handful of us, a place like the Maldives has come to expect this sort of interest, and even rely on it. The number of people visiting the Maldives jumped nearly 20% between 2017 and 2018 alone, nearing a total of 1.3 million global travellers. However, according to Azim Zahir from the Centre for Muslim States and Societies at the University of Western Australia, this spike in tourism isn't out of the ordinary. The tourism industry has been the main engine of development over the past 30 years in the country. Today, tourism contributes near 40% to their overall GDP and is the largest industry in the country. It's also among the top countries in the world whose economies are dependent on international travellers. It was back in the early 70s when tourism really took off in the Maldives, being steered by the government and president of the time, Ibrahim Nazir, of who owned the industry alongside his family and friends. It has always been controlled by the government in terms of making policies and in terms of even running businesses. But as tourism has continued to grow and grow over the last 40 years in the Maldives, some are concerned it has grown too fast, too soon, and that depending so heavily on an unpredictable industry leaves them open to economic collapse. Today on the show, as sea level rise threatens the very fabric of the Maldives, could it actually be tourism and the political crisis currently boiling that ultimately bring the islands to its knees? You're listening to Think Sustainability. My name is Jake Morecambe. On the 1st of February, the Maldivian Supreme Court abruptly ordered the release of nine political prisoners from jail, most of who are members of the opposing political party initially jailed under allegations of terrorism. Four days following the Supreme Court's order, President Abdullah Yamin called a state of emergency, which, according to Azim Zahir from the University of Western Australia, this move was purely politically motivated and politically engineered. This is because if a state of emergency is called, in simple terms, laws are loosened and political acts may be performed that wouldn't typically be permitted. So for President Yamin... He got the pretext of law to regain political control by suspending individual rights. Yamin was concerned that the Supreme Court's decision to release members of the opposition would mean that they would rise up and ultimately oust him from power. And Azim says he had reason to be worried, given the opposition is armed with some of the most powerful political forces in the country, including Yamin's own half-brother, Mamoun Abdul-Gayoum, who served as president of the Maldives for 30 years, between 1978 and 2008. 
Two years ago, Mamoun split from the Progressive Party, the leading political party in the Maldives, to join the Maldives' united opposition. On the day of the emergency, Yamin would use his newfound political powers to arrest his half-brother and his son for what stemmed from these actions, joining the opposition and allegedly conspiring to overthrow the government. But not only that, Yamin also jailed two Supreme Court judges involved in the ruling that occurred on February 1st, and two, the Supreme Court Chief Justice. As these tensions between the two parties reached critical levels, this unease trickled down into the public. The opposition um, attempted to stage protests on the streets, which had the potential of becoming violent. And and there were, in fact, clashes between uh, the protesters and the police. But although the situation was very tense and could have led to a major unrest, Azim says for the most part... The opposition protests were largely peaceful. The day-to-day life of the people uh, was normal. The, the schools were open and the offices were open. But this calm wasn't necessarily communicated to the rest of the world. During the state of emergency, a number of travel advisories were issued and sent out to countries, of whom travel frequently to the Maldives, particularly places like China. China has become one of the main contributors to Maldives tourism. And India. These advisories outlined the situation and also instructed those travelling to the Maldives to avoid Male, the capital, where there were concerns that violence could escalate in the area. But as these advisories were issued, tourist bodies began to speak out, including the Guest House Association of Maldives, who called for the government to end the state of emergency, which ended up lasting 45 days, when initially posed for only 15. Yamin wanted more time to regain control and conduct investigations. These tourist bodies were reporting that they were receiving daily cancellations of bookings since the emergency was first brought into effect, some experiencing up to 50 or 60 cancellations per day. Some observers, industry observers, believe that there have been a lot of damage to the tourism industry. Observers know this because back in November of 2015, a very similar series of events took place. President Yamin had called a state of emergency, this time citing a threat to citizens' safety and national security, when a protest was organised by the Maldivian Democratic Party, the main opposition at the time. What they found was not only was there a halt and drawback in the number of visitors, but the reputation, the brand of the Maldives, was tarnished. The tourism industry of the Maldives very much depend on the Maldivian brand and the Maldivian image, uh, which is that it is a paradise which is peaceful and which is beautiful and all that. So that brand would be damaged whenever there is this kind of uh, political unrest in the country. Because tourism is so ingrained into the livelihoods of those who live in the Maldives, any damage to the tourism brand does more than affect the number of people coming into the country. There are other small businesses also linked to tourism industry. For example, local people could sell their products uh, to tourists and there are tourist shops in the capital that sell uh, products for tourism industry. The hotels and home accommodations along the archipelago of islands 
These are what you might imagine the Maldives tourist experience to look like. Pockets of small house-like structures stretched out along wooden boardwalks atop crystal waters. These stand to be the worst affected, as this is where a lot of the industry is concentrated. However, there's another problem at play here, an inequity, because many of these employed in these hotels are actually from overseas. Most of them come from uh, Bangladesh and uh, Sri Lanka and India. Employed as cleaners, managers, they're running these hotels because to those who own these establishments, employing these people is much cheaper. They can be employed as cheap as hundred to two hundred dollars per month. We are talking about even the average salary of Maldivian workers wouldn't be that high in tourism sector. It would be around four hundred to six hundred dollars per month, I believe. But the foreign labor would be even cheaper. The increasing rates of foreign labourers has sown an ongoing unease into the country, including rights protests for expatriate workers, where more stories of discrimination and community unrest are coming out. All of this could do more to damage the brand of the Maldives than that of the political crisis at hand. Although Azim argues it's all connected. Overall wealth is reflected in the economy of the country, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is distributed. In fact, I would say that even if there has been a huge increase in overall GDP, it hasn't been equally distributed across the country. So, in the case of an economic collapse, an unequal distribution of wealth would push those on the lower end even further on the fringes. This inequity and to the dependence on an individual industry, some argue, can be addressed by diversifying the economy. The same applies if your economy is based purely on oil. What happens when the oil runs out? Dr. David Bierman from the University of Technology Sydney Business School. Interestingly enough, a lot of countries in the Middle East, and I guess Dubai and Abu Dhabi are probably two terrific examples. When the oil started to run out in those countries, they looked at tourism as an obvious replacement for oil. But also, too, what those countries did was also develop themselves as business or trade centres. So. It is important to make sure you've got a number of fallback areas and and backstops. A diverse economy means your eggs aren't all in one basket. However, even developed countries, including Australia, still have a toe, let alone the whole foot, dipped into unsustainable industries. Our Achilles' heel, to a certain extent, is our dependence on resources like iron ore and coal. But tourism might surprise you to know only accounts for about seven percent of our overall GDP, which is less than many other countries. Despite the fact that our, our tourism has been growing in leaps and bounds over the last few years, but Australia's economy isn't going to rise and fall on tourism. And although a diverse range of industries may keep our economy stable, Azim Zahir says the act of diversifying the economy doesn't happen overnight. And assuming a Western model of diversity might not work for a place like the Maldives. And so, do you think when we're coming to moving forward that they need diversify their economy? Like, I guess it's kind of easy from an outsider's perspective just to be like, well, perhaps they should engage in other industries. Is that the problem? Is that too hard to achieve? What What are we looking at moving forward here? I think、uh, that there are challenges to diversify the economy、um, because of. The geographic nature of the country, but 
there are potential other industries like recently there has been an increase in the construction industry in the country but also fishing fisheries had been the main industry before tourism and still contributes a lot to uh, the economy of the country the maldives exports fish abroad but uh, because a lot of focus has been on tourism and not developing these industries i think these are potential areas that uh, the country could have uh, gone so yeah uh, i mean the government could have diversified the economy uh, but it tended to develop the tourism industry i think at the expense of potential other industries and they chose to do that because they thought that they could reap economic reward by honing their attention towards tourism yes definitely so this is one problem and i don't think broader developmental policy of the government which is a kind of focused on hard development would be the future for the country So if there's no room to diversify, how do you make a universally unsustainable industry like tourism sustainable? That's next. I think it's taking a very long-term view. What type of future do those environments actually see for themselves? The Maldives is at a crossroads. As sea level rise threatens the very existence of numerous islands that have become tourist hotspots, Stephen Schweinsberg from the University of Technology Sydney Business School says they not only have to think about what their future looks like, but whether they have one at all. and there's a philosophical question that actually goes along with this as well should tourism actually exist in certain parts of the world parts of the world parts of the world or should certain parts of the world simply be off limits to cancel tourism or shut off the maldives to international visitors completely is now impossible however there are other parts of the world considering these sorts of measures back to David Beerman from UTS who says a place like Bhutan a country in Southeast Asia yeah Bhutan is a country which actually will determine whether you are permitted to enter there's no automatic guarantee if you do enter Bhutan you have to spend a certain amount of money per day and contribute to that local economy even Barcelona which hasn't seen much in terms of regulation but instead a public pushback against tourists themselves where the locals are actually protesting against tourists because it's actually raising the prices of their rent and property yeah. and groceries where some of the locals are, are fed up with tourists however the maldives is facing a different issue unintentionally the maldives has become somewhat of a last chance tourist destination So last chance tourism which is just basically that idea is really you know not only last chance in terms of you know arctic environments things like that but in terms of you know species and rainforests that maybe are dying out it that that's really having a much more dominant effect Last chance tourism for a place like the Maldives is essentially a boom 
and a bust. Boom, last chance tourists go crazy, and the next five years is an absolute win, bringing more and more people into the country than ever before. Bust, given the environmental footprint of the tourism industry alone, the sheer number of visitors not only puts a strain on resources, completely exhausting the carrying capacity of the country, but that due to flights in and out of the country, they contribute to global figures in terms of carbon emissions. Finding this equal ground seems near impossible, but to Azim Zahir from the University of Western Australia... The tourism industry has to be cognizant of the environment. That balance has to be there. And how do you think best to do that? I believe that uh, there are different models of development. Decentralising development in tourist hotspots could help avoid another Malé. Malé region, for example, is an urban disaster because of concentration of development. More than 130,000 people, which is over a third of the population, reside within the capital that spans just over 5.2 square kilometres. And given that there are more than 1,000 islands scattered throughout the region, there is interest to avoid stuffing everyone together like sardines in the future. And that means that we can't concentrate everything in one island or a group of islands. This does happen now to an extent, where many of those wooden houses stretching out along a boardwalk are found on some of the smaller islands, far away from the capital. But again, poor development and infrastructure is starting to show. Even the guesthouse tourism industry, it can kind of get out of hand. We see that these islands are losing their natural beauty and the natural character of these islands because of ever more concrete development in these these islands, which not only damage the beaches and natural environment, but also the way of life of these islands. The conversation around what to do when not only do these islands become damaged beyond repair, but when seawaters begin to lap their doors and windows, has jumped back and forth over the past decade. In 2012, President Nasheed announced the government was mulling over plans to relocate parts of the population to Australia. However, these plans never came to fruition. Even earlier than that, in 2008, the government was pushing to divert a portion of their billion-dollar tourist revenue to buying international land, in case where they are now goes underwater completely. However, it seems development still takes precedent today with even more recently some outlandish plans to develop the world's first underwater villa off the Conrad Maldives' Rangali Island, costing, at this point, $15 million. The aspirations for tourism remain high, and although decentralising development and developing in a way that doesn't damage the surrounding environment could pave the way forward, Azim says the local community aren't convinced that this is going to happen. It's really not normal, even if it might appear normal, because we know that most people don't like the government. Most people don't like uh, the president. So there's always the potential for violence to break out. Yeah, it's, it's really tragic because the Maldives is very old. People have been living there for over 2,500 years. And, uh, I mean, it, it has the potential to become a really uh, stable democracy, and interestingly, in a Muslim country. 
there is that potential for this country to become a democratic Muslim country. Uh, but because of the kind of political culture that exists there, uh, which, is, which is controlled by a few politicians uh, who are, I believe, uh, very anti-democratic, uh, who, who are also very interested in immediate self-interest of money and wealth, I, I think that uh, has kind of jeopardized the country's move and potential towards uh, a stable democracy. Would you encourage people to travel there? Uh, at, at a personal level, I mean, it's more of an ethical uh, judgment for one to make. The situation is grave in terms of human rights violations, in, in terms of systematic de-democratization. By that, I mean the freedom for peaceful political activities. Uh, there's virtually no such freedom in the country since President Yamin has come to power. We saw the brutal murder of a blogger last year. What Azim is referring to was the stabbing of Yamin Rashid, a blogger who ran the Daily Panic, in which he wrote and poked fun at politicians. He was found in his apartment with multiple stab wounds to his neck and chest and died later in hospital. Reportedly, he received death threats prior to his murder and to this date, his killer or killers have still not been found. This brutal event, however, Azim says, hasn't put international visitors in danger. In terms of uh, the security situation and in terms of safety, uh, I I would say that there is no problem there uh, because it is safe uh, to travel to the Maldives. But it is, from an ethical point of view, it is for the individual tourists and individual travellers to decide whether they should be travelling or not there. I think I probably have, you know, some indirect friends of whom have travelled there before and, you know, kind of when it comes to the white Western side, it's like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. And it is, but completely <laughs> kind of disregarding everything else. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, it's not a very simple question. It's not a very simple judgment. I mean, the money that you contribute uh, through your travel to the Maldives, it actually also pays salary for the workers in resorts. So it's not black and white. I think personally, I would say that individual uh, boycotts uh, wouldn't have um, a significant impact on the government. It wouldn't change the course of the direction uh, set by the government. It should be more of a concerted, more of an organized, if it should have an effect on what the government will do. And what do you think that concerted effort looks like? First of all, it should be more of a targeted kind of uh, pressure exerted on the government. Uh, by that, I mean the government is functioning smoothly because of the kind of relation it has established with big businesses, which includes, obviously, the tourism sector. It has to be more of targeted pressure on individuals and individual businesses. That kind of pressure would come from multilateral efforts and also cooperation with various countries. Are we seeing any of that directed to some of these multinationals in the Maldives? Uh, not at the moment. Um, the, the, the EU, the European Union, uh, has come up with some statements. Uh, and also individual countries like Australia and India and uh, other European countries and the US have come up with statements, mainly limited to press statements and uh, government statements. There have not been any significant international pressure that goes beyond statements. 
Do you find it an interesting intersection too where it seems with perhaps these concerted international efforts that developed nations are interfering with what's happening in a developing nation? I think we have to be mindful of uh, potential uh, negative interferences by foreign countries. But at the same time, we can't ignore um, the human rights situation and uh, effects of de-democratization in other parts of the world, especially because they are part of the United Nations and party to several international conventions. They have obligations to pressure individual governments to protect the human rights of their citizens. Would you travel there for a holiday? Um, I'm from the Maldives, so I, I definitely travel there, and I would travel there uh, to meet my family and my friends. So, uh, but uh, from from again, I'm I'm very torn on 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 this uh, question of whether we should be supportive of the regime indirectly through the revenue that we contribute uh, to the state budget uh, through our travel and our uh, visits to resorts. <laughs> That's it for Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show and are not already, please subscribe to us. Just go to your favorite podcast app or iTunes and just search Think Sustainability. We also have a website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. A big thanks to Azim Zahir, who helped me thread a lot of this story together and was also very patient with me. Big thanks. My name is Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>